0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There is no one better to talk to about the quickness that we are all living. And Savita Subramanian, Bank of America, head of U.S. equity, a quantitative strategy, Tell me about the Greek letters, Savita. What does gamma, what does delta say about this unusual time?
1: You know, I think um, we've had a fast and furious comeback in the market. I think what's really interesting to look at today is just the valuation of the market. Um so two things have happened over the last month. The market has gone down and then up pretty quickly. And then you've also seen earnings revised down pretty aggressively. So what's happened is the PE of the market, the price to earnings ratio has has actually risen to almost the same highs that we were at in February, which means the market is again very very expensive. And this time it's because earnings are lower, and the price is back to, uh, to, to you know, pretty aggressive levels. So, so I guess when we look at the market today, we think, okay, it looks just as expensive as it did about a month ago. And we're not out of the woods yet. So we've got, you know, we've got employment likely to get worse before it gets better. We've got um, you know, a lot of uncertainty around timing, uh, in terms of business resumption. Um, we've got uh, you know, kind of a, a very muddled earnings season where a lot of companies are just shutting down guidance because they have, you know, kind of a, a no visibility in terms of what's gonna happen. I don't know, when I look at this I think, okay, we've come back pretty quickly. But do we really have the underpinnings, the fundamental underpinnings of a, of a strong bull market from here? And I think that's the big question mark for me.
2: Yeah. And when you talk about questions, we used to say, pay attention to fundamentals. And now people are saying numbers don't matter. We're flying blind. It's bad. We don't know how bad. It doesn't matter how bad, as long as we get a sense of when it actually starts to come back. What's your compass right now for deciding whether to buy or sell?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really good question. And I think the way we're thinking about things is more just the short term is so fraught with uh, with uncertainty that it might just make more sense to think about a normalized earnings approach, just, you know, what are earnings going to look like over the next few years? Does the, does the global pandemic change a lot for the earnings composition of the S&P 500? And I think there are puts and takes, you know, so I think if you think about travel and commercial real estate we might be less inclined to um to see those uh those areas continue to to receive the amounts of of or to continue to generate the amounts of revenue they have to date, um, as, you know, this this sort of hastens the work-from-home, uh, less reliance on, on office space uh, aspect of the economy. But on the flip side, if companies are paying less for office space and corporate travel, then maybe that's good for margins. Um, so I do think that there are, you know, kind of offsets, positive offsets to normalized earnings. But here's our take. We think that normalized earnings is going to be about 10% lower than what, what uh, we were expecting prior to COVID-19. Um, and, you know, and I think that that's, that's not so bad. I think stocks are still offering a, a relatively competitive return to most other fixed income assets. And, you know, kind of thinking about our quant models uh, you know, I think what, one of the things that we find interesting is that valuation doesn't really matter for the short term, but it does seem to matter quite strongly for the long term. The R squared on on you know the PE ratio of the market over the next ten years is above sixty percent, so that means that valuation is really important in terms of describing what the market's going to look like over a ten year time horizon. And returns right now look like they could be in the you know three to four to five percent range over the next ten years. If you add on a two to three percent dividend yield that's you know seven percent returns that's not bad in an environment where where interest rates are super low and most fixed income assets aren't going to offer that type of uh, quality adjusted return so i think longer term stocks still look good to me but i think they've come back a little bit too quickly
3: so vita help us understand then with all of this in mind how useful earnings season is
1: yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. So I think that earnings season is a little bit of a guessing game. A lot of companies aren't going to give you guidance. Um, if you look at the dispersion of analyst estimates, we've reached all-time highs. Nobody knows what's going on. So I think that you know what you want to pay attention to this earnings season are surprises. One of the things we found interesting was that in, in prior periods when dispersion of analyst estimates was this high, surprises were actually rewarded more than usual. They were rewarded three times as much as usual. So I think that earnings beats in this environment are going to be very sparse. But uh, but they will definitely see much bigger rewards than what we've, uh, what we've experienced historically. So I think that's what we want to pay attention to this earnings season. I don't know if we really want to pay attention to guidance because I think companies, just like you and me, don't really have a good sense of how this year is going to shape up.
3: I'm not sure who's still providing guidance. Savita, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for the hard work from the team, especially at a time like this. Savita Subramaniam there of Bank for America.
0: On this pandemic, we have been thrilled by our medical coverage. We really try to make a commitment to speak to experts on this uh, weeks and weeks and weeks ago. And we're thrilled, thrilled to have an agreement with Johns Hopkins to bring you their best and brightest across all of their facilities, including the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, uh, with the philanthropy there of our founder, Michael Bloomberg, a uh, founder of Bloomberg LP, and, of course, his television and radio operation as well. But there's much more at the Johns Hopkins University, and that includes a world-class nursing program. Jason Farley is a uh, doctor at uh, the nursing program. He is expert on the people in the trenches, and we spoke today about the dynamics of this nation and nursing. Here is Professor Farley.
4: So we know that um, when we're looking at how many people become critically ill, we're still looking at approximately 20% of people hospitalized, uh, needing some form of acute care, and of that group, approximately half will need some form of mechanical ventilation. Now, the, those needing <clears> mechanical <throat> ventilation tend to be tend to skew toward our older population, and we're still seeing that data in the United States, consistent with what we've seen around the world.
2: Does our response team in the U.S. and in other parts of the world have enough equipment, have enough personal protection, to deal with the virus in the coming weeks and months?
4: So, so the the administration has finally um, started to um, uh, offer support to the state uh, in trying to get more PPE. There have been Herculean efforts by various governors across the United States to um, bring in more N95 masks, to bring in more gowns and gloves, to bring in um, face shields uh, for our frontline healthcare workers. that has been different across states, and as you've seen, reporting um, different governors across the United States have had to basically barter, uh, <clears throat> stake in, in, you know, for lack of a better word, um, personal protective equipment from various agencies, including going uh, overseas to obtain, you know, masks from China and their support masks from other countries. Um, it's it also in my home state of Maryland, uh, the governor has launched a N95 reprocessing center, uh, one of the largest in the country, uh, to facilitate the reuse and cleaning of the N95 masks, which is something that's unheard of. We would never typically <clears throat> reuse those right. types of masks. So we're being very resilient in our efforts to try to make sure we have enough PPE.
0: Dr. Farrell, you are expert in the epidemiology of infectious diseases and your Johns Hopkins has flat out done the best job of a regional, a city, almost a a nationwide epidemiology and study of these statistics. The statistics, the slopes, the second derivatives for some of these regions, California, Florida, they're really not very good. New New Jersey, just it's not happening. Tell us about the diffusement of a virus from hot spots, which get all the media attention, out into the greater public. What is the experience you have of infectious disease from hotspots out to broader geographies?
4: Sure. So when we talk about hot spots, it's important for everyone to understand that's where we have ongoing, you know, replication of the virus and transmission of the virus. Um, you know, when, a, when we know what the infectivity uh, potential of the virus is, and that's what we call the R-naught, um, in this case, it's between two and three. And so that means for every person that you uh, infect, a person with COVID infects, they're going to infect approximately two and, to two and a half to three people. Um, uh with the virus and so hotspots allow that propagation or that that transmissibility to occur um, ongoing in an ongoing basis now the trickle effect you know bleeding out into other locales and locations it's a perfect example in the united states right now is Rhode island it's been mm-hmm. getting cases coming in from new York from new york state as well as in from Connecticut and it was not deemed a hot spot, but because of you know migration, because of contact, because of um, you know people's yeah. movement, uh, it has now started <clears throat> to see bleed over.
0: Jason Farley, the Johns Hopkins University, thrilled to have him on today with their uh, School of Nursing. Michelle Meyer, with us with Bank of America. Michelle, I guess I did math there. I don't know if it's Bank of America quality, but I took 22 million divided by 155 million employed. Uh, That's uh, really ugly. How do you fold that into a guesstimate of where the unemployment rate will head?
5: Um, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, John. So, um, yes, absolutely. Those are uh, disturbing numbers. Um, and your math is correct. Um, it's about fourteen percent of the labor force that have already lost jobs in an extremely short order amount of time. So, the unemployment rate is already in double digits. It's um, with these numbers, if you assume one to one translation to the household survey. Um, from the BLS, which is probably not quite right. Probably there's some um, wiggle room there, but it would suggest you're probably already at about a 14%, 15% unemployment rate.
2: What do you think it's going to eventually end up being given the pace that we're seeing, given the lack of clarity as far as the ability to process these claims versus the demand for unemployment benefits right now? So, you know. The
5: bulk of the, the, the loss is happening right now. I mean, that's this, what this recession um, looks like. It's an acute crisis, it's, it's a shutting down of parts of the economy. It all happens very, very suddenly. So, um, you know, we, we certainly should assume some moderation going forward. Um, I don't think we've returned to anything that, you know, was kind of pre COVID levels for a really long time when it comes to claims. Um, they will remain elevated, um, but they'll come off of these extraordinary uh, levels of five, six million a, a week. Um, nonetheless, you know, April jobs report will be clearly very ugly with what we're seeing. You know, millions of, 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 of jobs lost. Um, May will probably also be very weak because you have some residual weakness there. Companies that have tried to, 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 to stay along, um, uh, but, you know, at, at some point – kind of decided the math doesn't make sense anymore and their employees would probably be better if they do go on um, unemployment insurance so you know there's some laggers there as well um, and uh, I do think that it's going to take some time to, to work through all of that.
3: Michelle in four weeks we've taken out 10 years of jobs growth in just four weeks and quite clearly it's easier quicker to get rid of jobs than it is to add them. Have you got yeah. any projections whatsoever at this point about how long it's going to take to heal these wounds that are deep into this labor market in just four weeks?
5: You're absolutely right. It's a lot easier to shut the lights off and put it back on, especially in this environment where, you know, it's it's a dramatic, quick shutdown, a lockdown um, from the shelter-at-home orders, and then it's going to be a very slow and properly partial reopening. Um, so the, the one thing to look at when you talk about the job cuts is the percent that are reportedly considered temporarily unemployed. Um, you know, The estimates I've seen suggest that about half of the current flow into unemployed um, are considered temp. So if that is the case, those workers, in theory, should be more attached to their employer's um, and they should be able to have a, a clearer trajectory as to when they'll be hired back and what that might look like. Um, so you'll see an initial, you know, once, once we go to, to the point where companies can start opening, um, businesses can start coming back, even partially, they will bring their workforce back to some mm-hmm. extent. Where it gets really sticky and where you see the frictions is that next phase. Um, so you bring back your essential workers and then what comes next. It's going to be very slow because you yeah. need to see revenues improve.
0: Your rise in acclaim, the folks with us, Michelle Meyer, Bank of America, uh, this morning. Your your rise to economic acclaim, Michelle, was founded on the housing market. I'm th- dying to ask you this: Give us the Michelle Meyer rent dynamic, housing sales dynamic, housing build dynamic. If you had to write a three-page essay right now on housing amid this unemployment rate, how would you frame it? I
5: mean, housing is under stress. Very simply, um, you know, housing is a sector that's he- heavily debt financed, so um, you know it's reliant on the ability to get leverage and the willingness to spend that debt, both, I would argue, are challenged right now from the household and from the builder perspective, the small builders. Um, and it also is a sector that requires quite a lot of confidence to go out and to purchase a new property, um, to spend the money and the time and the effort in terms of making that your, your, the home of your dreams. That all requires having confidence about your current and future income. And, and I would argue that that's certainly not the case well, today either. So you're going to see quite a big drop okay. in housing
0: activity. Then what's the elasticity of rent or house price? I mean, do, you, do we finally get, a, you know, we're addicted to housing always going up. Yeah, right. We learned in 07 that doesn't work. But should we anticipate now flatness or even declining cost of us living in rent or homes? So,
5: you know, it, it, First, I'll take the on, on rents. I mean, um, it, on either rents or housing prices, they tend to be sticky, so they don't adjust yeah. immediately. They, you first have to see transactions adjust lower. You find a market clearing price, and then you, you see the price data actually um, uh, adjust. So, but but what, what's interesting on the rent side is that y- you could see, in theory, you know landlords across the board say, look, we're going to give a reduction in, in, in rent very quickly, given the unprecedented nature of this shock. Um, you've seen a number of MSAs try to push for mandated you know, rent reductions, at least for a period of time, to ease the burden um, on individuals. So it, it depends. I mean, I think given the unprecedented nature of the shock, you could see a faster reduction, perhaps, um, in the cost of living, um, given how much income has been reduced. But typically, um rent and home prices tend to lag. You first need to see the move in terms of transactions and then you see it in terms of, of the price
3: variable. Michelle, there's a lot of people really struggling in this moment. You know that. Everybody listening in this very moment knows that. And I'm just wondering if there's anything else we can do on the policy side to help out. Is there anything left?
5: I do think that there's more that probably will be done. I mean the response has been aggressive, it's been targeted. Um, but there are naturally, you know, some frictions. The, 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 the clock is, is, is ticking, particularly when it comes to small medium businesses who are forced to cut workers, as we're seeing this morning. Um, so the quicker that funds can be distributed, the better. Now it's a really hard thing to do is to turn around and all of a sudden get all the money to where it needs to go in the private sector. It's not an easy task. And naturally there's going to be some operational challenges and, 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 and issues there, uh, which is what, what, what looks to be happening to some extent. But um, I suspect we will see additional funds be allocated. There likely will be another round of stimulus, probably in pretty short order, um, targeting small and medium-sized businesses and trying to create the right incentives to keep their workers
2: um, on the books. Michelle? This, these numbers are brutal. They're really, really depressing to see this scope of, of Americans lose their jobs, and frankly, people worldwide lose their jobs. And yet we're looking at S&P futures that are up a half a percent. They actually climbed after this data came out. Can you look to any positive economic developments that could be edifying the sort of positive sentiment that we're seeing bleed out in stocks today?
5: So there's always a question of what's priced in, um, and I think, you know, presumably very weak data has been priced in, right? There's an awareness that um, with a shutdowns being enforced, you're going to see these level sets down in the data, which is exactly what's coming through. Um, but no, obviously the data on the headline is absolutely um, is absolutely stunning in terms of its degree of weakness. Um The other thing probably driving markets, presumably, is what we just talked about around stimulus. You know, how much of an offset will there be? Uh, There seems to be a large willingness from the policy side to try to counter the weakness in the private economy, and try to offset the shock from um, the COVID pandemic. So, you know, I would imagine investors are also paying very close attention to that as well, what the degree of stimulus and how that bleeds into the broader economy.
3: Michelle, great to get your thoughts, as always. Michelle Meyer there of Bank of America.
0: Henrietta Trez joins with VEDA Partners. I, I I can't keep track, Henrietta, of the alphabet soup, but one big small business pot has already been used up. Is anybody in Washington aware that as a percent of GDP, they're a third or maybe halfway to where they're going to go? I, it's
6: interesting. I think that they are aware of that, but they are slowly – being becoming more comfortable with making it take as long as possible to get each of these stimulus bills out. So the complicated way of saying they get it, And they know that there's more stimulus coming, a fourth bill, a fifth bill, a sixth bill. But I've been tracking the duration of time it takes them to agree to these pieces of legislation, the first three and now 3.5, which hopefully we'll get by the end of this weekend. Um, And it keeps taking them just a little bit longer each time. So they're comfortable with the spending, but they're getting more dug in politically about what points they want to make, whether they sense any kind of urgency. It's almost like they know it's coming, so they're willing to take it slow.
3: Do you sense urgency at the moment?
6: Um, I don't sense urgency right now. No. And I think that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin tried to create some urgency starting last Wednesday. And now here we are a, more than a week later. And we still don't even have this urgent stimulus 3.5 bill. Um, I think Republicans are trying to make a political point in the Senate and Democrats still are the minority in the House. So eventually you're going to have to have pie to bipartisan conversation and they're just not doing that at this time despite the urgent calls from treasury so ultimately we'll get this money spent i think the 3.5 bill will be about 500 billion dollars and then the fourth stimulus bill could easily get you into the 1.5 to 2 trillion dollar package they're seeing this macro data come in they know it's a horror show out there and there are still political games being played um and that that gives you a sense that they know it's coming but it's not urgent
3: Henrietta, that's shocking to me that in nine minutes time we'll have another ugly jobless claims print. And for someone like yourself who has to read the room in Washington and you don't sense urgency, I mean, how disappointing is that in a moment like this that you don't sense that at all?
6: It's, it's really painful. It, it hurts my feelings, if we're being honest. I mean, there are some staff who are deeply entrenched in this and understand the daily goings on on the market, but that is not the norm. Um, and you also have... you you also have the problem of having these members spread across the nation, you know, so they're not physically in DC, capable of generating all kinds of momentum for passing any specific legislation. So um, I I think we're seeing that really play out. And while the president keeps holding these daily press briefings, um, it's almost like no one can get a word in edgewise. sort of sucks the oxygen out of the room so nobody's able to make their individual political points, even if they wanted to.
2: Let's let's dig a little bit deeper into the urgency of this. We've seen <laughs> figures that 90 percent of the Small Biz- Business Administration lending facility has been already extended. It has not been delivered yet. The cash not necessarily in the hands of the businesses, but promised out. Now there is another wave of funding being requested from even smaller businesses. How urgent is it that Congress re-ups the amount of money to this program program in order to stave off another round of bankruptcies I think that's exactly the question we don't have any oversight or data about what
6: Treasury is doing who's getting these loans um, how effective it's been at stemming payroll cuts um, and I think a lot of members want that information and they want to see it roll out what the Democrats are trying to do is not necessarily delay the, the PPP from being replenished but they want to steer the funding into specific baskets which members like Marco Rubio have an issue with. So, for instance, if you can't oversee exactly who's getting these loans, and you don't know if it's really reaching the hands of the folks who need it, what you can do is you can streamline and say, "All right, we want you know 150 billion dollars of this money directly to go to businesses with fewer than 500 people um, in specific locations, um, minority-owned, women-owned. You know, kind of try to direct it in that regard." And that's what Democrats have tried to put into their pieces of legislation, but the Republicans are essentially saying, look, we just need to get this money out there. We don't have time for these games. Let's just put the money in this basket and get it spent. Um, so it's, it's a competing view of how to control where this money is uh, delivered and how effectively it's used. And when you see the Fed and Treasury just saying, we're just trying to shovel money out the door right now. It's really difficult to exert oversight in a specific time of crisis. That should really come later, and it will.
2: Is there more urgency with respect to coming up with a plan to reopen the economy?
6: The plan to reopen the economy is an, really just a mess, um, if we're being honest. There is a really haphazard effort going on at the administration level, and almost nothing in that vein going on in either the House or the Senate. Obviously, we have some select governors who are in states you've been deeply hit and are trying to coordinate amongst each other to try to bring their states out of this shutdown. But the administration is creating a situation where people have different senses of different dates. So May 1st is a thing. May 7th is a thing. June 1st is a the thing. There's no cohesion. And the, you know, quote-unquote, opening our city council that the administration has been, um, you know, sort of dangling in front of us has no members. It has no concrete plan. It is not unified. And most importantly, it has nothing to do um, with providing testing to the extent that we need it. You know, no state has been able to test more than 2.7 percent of its population. That's just not going to cut it. Uh, You know, if you're President Trump and you can walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, that's different.
0: Henrietta, that's the statistic of the day. Thank you for bringing us that wisdom of under 3% testing uh, right now. Certainly that's what everyone's talking about this Thursday uh, morning. Henrietta Trace uh, with VEDA Partners.
4: Well, in the United States, we have Uber, we have Lyft for our ride sharing. In China, They have a company by the name of Didi. Uh, David Rubenstein, Carlisle co-chairman, sat down with the president of Didi and part of his latest peer-to-peer conversations. Let's take a listen.
7: Uber is now publicly (laughs) traded, and it's losing a fair amount of money every year, a billion dollars plus a year or something like that Mm -hmm. or more. Um, Are you thinking of going public, and are you losing money, or are you making money?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, um, we do have a specific IPO timetable. Let's put it that way. And back to the Uber point, I'm sure it's temporary and they will go through it. Dara is a very diligent CEO and very experienced. For us, uh, we think profitability is a natural result of the value you really create. And there are two things in China very different from the other market. First, the ride share is cheaper than car ownership. So that's the huge value creation you provide to your users. And secondly, in China, we are going through a transition that people, you know, people urge for better life quality, better lives.
0: Jean Lu of Didi, David Rubenstein joins us now. And of course, these peer-to-peer conversations are just superb. And there are always names we know, except not now. David, I want you to sell Ms. Liu to our audience. Why do we care about this interesting investor from China?
7: Well, it's a very interesting woman. She's educated in China. Her father is a prominent business person. He he started Lenovo, which is a major computer yeah, manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. She later went to Harvard, got a computer science degree, and then did what many Chinese educated in the United States do—they went to work in Wall Street. She went to work for Goldman Sachs in in uh, Hong Kong, and um, she became an investor. And she wanted to invest in a company called Didi, and they wouldn't take her money—Goldman Sachs's <laughs> money. Eventually, she said, let me just join the company. She did. Now she rose up to be the president. We think in the United States that we're the center of the universe very often, but Didi is bigger than Uber. Now, Didi is not publicly traded, so we don't know completely the value, but it has more customers than Uber does, and it just has Mm -hmm. uh, a bigger uh, base than than Uber does. We've people there.
0: That scream you heard last night, uh, David Rubenstein was Paul Sweeney screaming at Uber or Lyft or one of them in New Jersey <laughs> as well. What's the ability to bring Didi over to America?
7: Well, interestingly, many of the Chinese companies that are the dominant in China don't really do that well in the United States or haven't become major presences here. So, like Alibaba is not a major presence here, or at least not yet. Uh, Didi actually is owned in part by Uber. Uber's an investor in it. Uber tried to be a major presence in China. And ultimately couldn't beat Didi, so it basically invested in Didi, and <laughs> Didi is uh, is really the the dominant partner there. And Uber will not really compete in China with them. Whether Didi will come to the United States, I think right right now probably they've got their hands full with China.
4: So, David, what did Miss Liu suggest to you was you know the key challenge for continuing the growth of Didi?
7: Well, of course, this was done before the uh, coronavirus. The interview was done a, a little while ago. Um, now everybody has the challenge that nobody's traveling. Though China is coming back online, and therefore China is uh, more uh, using these kind of a device, uh, these kind of uh, uh, things than they are in the United States right now, because people are going back to work. So it's not like the United States where nobody's traveling. Uh, Didi basically is, is a company like Alibaba which has become a major presence in China. Everybody knows it. Everybody likes it. And interestingly, what she does very often is she drives the car herself. She wants to see what her customers are thinking. So she drives the car, and very often uh, you know, she gets comments from people saying, you're not a very good driver. I'm going to report you to the company or something like that. Or sometimes people say she's very good.
4: So what's, it, what's the competitive landscape in China for the ride-sharing business here in the States? We've got Uber. We've got Lyft right. kind of duking it out.
7: When, this, when when D.D. Was, was started in China, there were roughly 30 of these companies. And in the end, they got down to just a few. And D.D. is the dominant one there, just as Uber with Lyft are the two dominant ones here. Uh, but D.D. has a much bigger presence than Uber really has in the United States. It's much more dominant and many more customers. And I, I just think it's likely to expand into other areas. And it's, it's, it's extremely well-respected for their service and their, their ability to kind of uh, take care of customers' various needs.
0: Uh, David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. The Carlisle co-chairman and, of course, uh, interviewer extraordinaire. I can't say enough, folks, about the David Rubenstein Show Peer to Peer Conversation, 7 p.m. Friday in uh, New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide i'm bloomberg radio